Well, this is the longest of the seven letters, although it was to a church in the smallest and the least important town of the seven churches. This is a twofold message. It's a message of warning and it's a message of judgment. It is a message that is given to us for our benefit. It is an expression of God's love that warns us of the dangers and the consequences of false teaching. Now, what made this city unique was uh, the number of the trade guilds that existed in the city. Remember, a trade guild was like a modern-day union. And, for instance, there were trade guilds for those who dyed wool. If you might remember that Lydia was from Thyatira, and she dyed wool. Um, there were trade guilds for those who made clothes, those who worked with leather, for those who crafted pottery, for bakers. And sadly, there was a trade guild even for those who bought and sold slaves. And these trade guilds held considerable power. And if you were not a part of the trade guild, you would have a very difficult, and again, almost impossible chance of making a living. And as we've seen previously, these trade associations, they were not benign. They were not member friendly, really. Each trade guild required attendance at their feasts and at their banquets. This in turn meant that those who participated in the feast would end up eating meat that had been sacrificed to whatever false god was associated with that particular trade guild. So what were the believers in Thyatira to do? If they participated in these pagan feasts, they were in clear violation of the scripture's command to not have anything to do with idolatry. They would be guilty of compromising their beliefs in the name of pragmatism. And I hope you, you readily see that what was a problem then continues to be a problem today. Well, sadly, there were some in the church someone in the church who taught that participating in these feasts wasn't really that big a deal. So what if you go and you eat some meat sacrificed to an idol? They taught that, this person taught that attendance at the feast didn't really matter. This false prophetess taught that the Christians really shouldn't worry about taking part. I mean, after all, they weren't sinning if they joined or if they participated in the trade guild. But part of the problem of attending these feasts was they often degenerated into sexual immorality. So who was it in the church that sadly successfully taught that it was okay to go along with the culture in order to get along with the culture? Well, Jesus identifies a particular woman in the church. Jesus says that the church was guilty of tolerating the aforementioned woman named Jezebel. 
And this lady, she liked to call herself a prophetess, but she wasn't a true prophetess. Jesus himself revealed her true identity. She was a false prophetess in sheep's clothing. So you may be wondering, was her name really Jezebel? I don't think so. Because Jezebel is a name that was infamous. And even today, I doubt that you've ever met anyone who bears that name. I could just imagine, let's pretend for just a moment, that Sherry's name was Jezebel. And uh, she resembles nothing of Jezebel. This is a way of illustration. And I took her home to my mom and dad and I said, I want you to meet my fiance. Her name is Jezebel. My mom would have stroked out and my dad would have choked on his Pepsi. <laughs> right? Why? Because of what the name Jezebel is associated with. Nobody names their child Jezebel that I know of. The name of Jezebel was associated with wickedness. The name Jezebel symbolized wickedness and immorality. So therefore, in order to understand why Jesus labeled this woman with this name of Jezebel, we need to have a little bit of a basic understanding of who the real Jezebel was. Well, the real Jezebel was married to one of the kings of Israel. His name was Ahab. Now, she wasn't a Jew. She was from Sidon. And Ahab married her for purely political reasons. And this political alliance was absolutely devastating to the people of God. Whatever benefits she may have brought with her, they were overshadowed by the spiritual devastation that she caused. Because with whatever benefits she brought, she also brought along with her a slew of false priests and she promoted, actively promoted the worship of Baal and Asherah. And she, she promoted it in such a way to the Israelites where she said, you can still worship Jehovah, not a problem. But hey, you can also add in the worship of Baal in Asherah. And it didn't take long for the worship of these false gods to spread throughout the land of Israel. The Jewish people were quickly seduced by the ideas that these two false gods, one male, Baal, and one female, Asherah, would bring them prosperity because they were, quote unquote, gods of fertility. They tragically believed that if they worshiped these false gods, they would experience fertile fields and fertile wombs. As Richard Phillips says, Jezebel's idolatry, which involved ritual prostitution at the pagan shrines, swept through God's people. And if you know the history of God's people, you know that once this idolatrous false worship was introduced, they could not rid themselves of it. And eventually it led to the judgment of God where they were exiled to Assyria and to Babylon. So Jezebel's name became associated with false teaching. And as we said, as we, as I tried to point out last week, false teaching always leads to compromise. And I will take it one step further this week. False teaching will lead to compromise and maybe even apostasy. 
Beware of the false teacher and the false teaching. So what does she teach? Well, she taught that it was possible to be a Christian and still be a part of the trade guilds and participate in everything associated with the trade guilds. She taught that just because that you're, that you're a Christian, that doesn't mean that you have to deny yourself of anything that the world has to offer. You can be a Christian and still live like a pagan. That was her philosophy. Douglas Kelly writes, she must have said, let's mingle with these people during the week. Let's go to their religious services and participate in their feast. Then they will realize that we too know how to have fun and are not judgmental of them. Jezebel's doctrine stated that one might please both God and the world and that Christians do not have to be different from others just because of their faith in Jesus, end quote. I hope you automatically see the fallacy in that teaching, see how absolutely false that teaching is, how that that kind of teaching stands in direct opposition to what the scriptures teach. The teaching of, of Jezebel stands in direct opposition to the scriptures. The Christian is one who has been called out of the world. A Christian who is one who has been set apart by God. A Christian who is one, is one who has been redeemed by God, who has been purchased by the blood of Christ. A Christian is one who has been set free from the bondage of sin. A Christian is no longer their own. They have been bought with a price and therefore, they are to glorify God in their physical bodies. Paul taught that to the church at Corinth. He said, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. As Christians, the Bible is clear that we are to use the members of our body as instruments of righteousness and not instruments of unrighteousness. Romans 6, Paul says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So how do you, how do you justify using your body in unrighteous ways in light of what the Scripture teaches? And it was interesting as I began to study this, I was kind of taken aback a little bit about how often the Bible talks about purity and sexual immorality. For instance, do you realize that the Bible frequently equates sexual sin with idolatry? You see this frequently in the Old Testament. God repeatedly warned his people about the dangers of idolatry and he many times use the illustration of adultery to drive the point home. For instance, in Hosea chapter 1 verse 2, says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So by forsaking the Lord, what were they doing? If they weren't worshiping him, what were they worshiping? The idols, the false gods. And he says, hey, Hosea, this may be a jarring message for the people to hear, but they need to hear it. Their flirtation with idolatry is going 
to whores. You say, wow. Is that what the Bible says? It's exactly what the Bible says. Listen to what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah said that Israel, by worshiping at the altars of Baal and at the Asherah poles, they were actually polluting the land. Jeremiah 3, 9, because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Very vivid pictures, isn't it? And what was a problem in that day is still a problem today. There are those who, like Jezebel, teach that you can love Jesus and you can love the things of the world at the same time. But again, the Bible refutes and contradicts that false claim. I've used this verse repeatedly the past few weeks, but I'll use it again. James 4, 4, you adulterous people. Now, you have to keep in mind, who, who is James addressing here? Jeff or Chris, you want to answer, answer my question? Who's these adulterous people? Believers, absolutely. Wow. Now, why were they adulterous people? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. J James is not pulling any punches, is he? Those who, who would be friends of the world, what does he call them? Adulterous people. The Bible also teaches that our inward spiritual change should be reflected externally through our actions. Jesus said in Matthew 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You can say that you've repented all that you want, but until you bring forth fruits demonstrating that repentance, all it is is talk. If you have truly repented, it will show up in your actions. There will be external evidence to validate your claims of repentance. Now, you may have heard a rumor going around about me that I like to read Christian biographies. Well, I'm here to confirm the rumor. It is true. Currently, I'm reading the biography of a man by the name of Thomas Charles who was part of the Welsh revivals in the 18th century. Now, you're intelligent people, so let's think this through together. How would you know if a revival was actually taking place? How would you know if the Spirit of God had been at work in a unique way? Well, you may answer, well, there would be this multitude of professions of faith in Christ. And that would be true because that is part of what happens during times of revival. But then let's follow up with another question. Let me ask you this. What would be the visible signs or the visible evidence that those professions were genuine? In other words, how do we know, how would we know that it was a true work of the Holy Spirit and not just some emotional outburst. A lot of people have emotional responses that don't last. 
So how would you determine whether or not it was a genuine revival or just something less? Well, the evidence that people had been genuinely converted was through the life change that took place in the lives of those who profess faith in Christ. In order for a profession of faith in Christ to be validated, it must be accompanied with life change. Now, listen, I'm not saying that a person goes from, you know, degenerate to saint overnight. I am not saying that. But there will be some change in the life of those who have come to faith in Christ. It's inevitable. Why? Because they have been given what? A new nature. A new nature, new desires, new affections. Okay. Again, they will show evidence of change. It may not be the scope of change that you or I would like to see. The pace of change may not be what we would like to see but there will be some evidence of change in their lives. James says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And I know that that's <laughs> caused some controversy even among good people down through history. But when you think about what James is saying, James is just being so practical here. Okay, you say that you have faith. Where are your works? Well, faith has nothing to do with works. Okay, but how do I know that you have faith if there are no works? See, I'm afraid we have a lot of people today who have prayed a prayer or signed a card or have done something else. And they say, yes, I put my faith in Christ, but there's no works to back up the faith. There's no works that accompany that faith. There's no real change that ever takes place in their lives. See, this is not being, this is not being legalistic. I cannot evaluate your claim to faith apart from what I see you doing. Correct? Correct? Now, for instance, this is a stupid illustration, which I'm king of. But, you know, I, I could say uh, I'm, I'm a preacher, but I never preach. And you would have every right to say to me, I thought you were a preacher. I'm a preacher. I identify as a preacher. I'm a preacher. But you never preach. Doesn't matter. I say I'm a preacher. You see how you just go round and round and round on this? Listen. We took Jeremiah into membership. He had to be here. This is well known. It's not just at him. You have to be a regular attender for six months. You have to go through discipleship before we even let you take the, the membership class. Why is that? We have to see the works. We have to see that his faith is real and living and active. You know, I grew up in the fundamentalist church where at the end of every service, they gave the invitation, if you want to join a church, just come on down. Come on down, we'll get you in. 
Didn't know him from Adam. My first church that I pastored, which I, I truly try and forget, but sometimes it, 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 it impinges upon me and comes in. But the, one of the first Sundays I was there, you know, they had a new boy in town, you know. And this, this church, it, it had been riddled with problems. And uh, so young, dumb Craig shows up. And uh, so they all come like, a, you know, I was a, a, a caged animal in a zoo uh, to come look at the old boy and see what he's got going on. And uh, so one of the very first Sundays I was there, this, this guy came forward. And he was, he was going to join the church. Well, and that, it, back in those days, I didn't know any better. And, and I was thrilled that anybody would listen to me preach, much less want to join the church. Amen. And uh, you know what? Never saw that fellow again. Never saw him again. But bless God, he could go out and say, hey, I'm a member. Right? Works are important. They prove to you as well as to others whether or not your faith is genuine. So, where was I? So those who observed revivals, that's what they looked for. They looked for works. They looked to see what people who claim to profess faith in Christ, what happened next. Well, here's a letter, uh, an excerpt of a letter that Thomas Charles wrote about the Welsh revival. He said, what number has been savingly wrought upon, time will reveal there are hardly any here without some concern about their souls, but some felt a much deeper work than others. This revival of religion has put an end to all the merry meetings for dancing, singing with the harp, and every kind of sinful mirth, which used to be so prevalent amongst young people here. And during a large fair kept here a few days ago, the usual reveling, the sound of music and vain singing was not to be heard in any part of the town. A decency in the conduct and sobriety in the countenances of our county folk appeared the whole of that fair, which I never observed before. And by the united desire of hundreds, we assembled at the chapel that night and enjoyed a most happy opportunity. Now, don't get caught up in the list of activities, okay? You weren't there in that context, in that culture. We don't know what their song said, and we don't know what the point of the reveling was. So don't be so quick to condemn. Don't be a chronological snob. Because the revivals in Welsh were genuine, well recorded. The point is, how did they know that revival had taken place? Lives were changed. They were different than what they were before. That was the evidence of their conversion. And from what I can gather, they didn't have to be told to stop doing these things. They just quit doing them. Why? Because they were a new creation. They had been given a new nature with new affections and new desires. Okay. They lived differently on the outside because they were different on the inside. So back to old Jezebel. Her teaching flatly contradicted what the scriptures teach. Basically, she said, if you're a Christian, your sins are forgiven, and therefore it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. Again, the Bible would take issue with that. 
Leviticus 11.44, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Now, let me ask you a question. How can I tell if you're holy? Through your actions. I don't know any other way of doing it. Now, there are some commentators who believe that perhaps Jezebel was a member of a trade guild. And so she didn't want to give up that membership. She didn't want to give up her income. She didn't give, want to uh, get out because of what that would cost her. So she probably rationalized that, well, I've got to eat. I've got to make money to survive. And after all, God wouldn't want me to struggle. So all I have to do is go to the feast and do like everyone else is doing. And I can live and make a good living. You know what her actions were saying? You know, I can be faithful to Jesus, but not totally faithful to Jesus. I'll have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of the false gods. On Sunday, I'll be faithful to Jesus, but the rest of the week, I'm going to go along in order to get along. She was not willing to pay the price that faithfulness to Christ demands, and she convinced others that they didn't have to pay the price too. Now think about this. If you tell someone, particularly perhaps they were immature believers, you tell someone, listen, you can be a Christian and you can still go have a really good time. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. When's the next meeting? See? Richard Phillips writes, the cost of being faithful to Christ was made poignant when the early church leader Tertullian rebuked a believer for participating in idolatry because of his business. The man defended his sin, saying, after all, I must live. Tertullian said, must you? Are you willing to be faithful to Christ, whatever the cost may be? Now, here's what I want you to notice. Jesus did not have a, re, uh, a knee-jerk reaction to this lady. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Jesus was patient with Jezebel, but she refused to repent. Now, the fact that Jesus was patient with her is not unique in the scriptures. The scriptures teach us that God is patient with sinners. Remember what Peter said? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And for this, we ought to be eternally grateful. Ask yourself, why didn't God take your life the first time that you sinned? Well, aren't you glad that he didn't? Well, the reason he didn't is because God is patient with the sinner, and he gives the sinner an opportunity to repent. Sadly for Jezebel, though, her chance, her opportunity, her time for repentance had passed, and Jesus came and executed judgment against her. So, well, what was the judgment? Well, look at verses 22 and 23. Jesus says, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus said he would throw her onto a sickbed. One commentator said the punishment fits the crime. 
She who profaned the bed of love is pinned to the bed of sickness. And I don't think the sickness referred to here is the sniffles. I think she was going to receive serious, debilitating, perhaps even life-threatening sickness. But not only was the false teacher to be judged, so were those who, brought, who bought into her false teaching and participated in the pagan feast. And let me emphasize again, be careful of what you expose yourself to. I cannot emphasize that enough. And in our day and age, you have access to almost unlimited information. And if you're not careful, you can, and perhaps you will, stumble upon a false teacher. And as I said last week, it sounds good on the surface. Listen, I think it's John MacArthur who says, you can always tell a false teacher by their lifestyle, by the way that they live. Okay, be careful. Be careful, be careful. Examine what you hear in light of the scriptures. Your actions are determined by your beliefs. Your beliefs are formed by what you willingly expose yourself to. Therefore, diligently guard your heart and your mind. Don't grant free access to either one. Who is in control of what you take in? You are. Who is in control of what you hear? You are. Listen, when you see that person coming that you know never has anything good to say, is always negative, walk the other way. Well, they may think that I'm rude. Let them think that they're rude. It's your mind. It's your spiritual condition. Let them go dump their stuff elsewhere. Okay? And I mentioned this last week. I don't believe they compromised overnight. This all started when the church tolerated this lady. And so she was able to week after week after week teach this heir. And after time, it became plausible to her hearers. And once it became plausible to her hearers, it became acceptable to her hearers. And once it became acceptable to her hearers, it wasn't long before they found themselves doing what they never thought they would do. And once you do what at first you knew to be sinful, but then it became plausible, then it became acceptable, now it's pleasurable, and you're sucked in. You've compromised your faith. You have compromised Christ. Well, what's going to happen to those who followed her false teaching? Well, Jesus said that those who commit adultery with her, in other words, those who take part in her sins, will be thrown into great tribulation. They will greatly suffer for their sin. But listen, Jesus does this for a good reason. He wants them to repent. I think the false prophetess was an unbeliever. But I think her followers contained some genuine believers. They had just been deceived. And so Jesus says, listen, repent or you're going to suffer, 
But the point of the suffering is to get you to repent, to see the error of your ways, to help you understand that, hey, you belong to me and I'm not going to let you live that way because that's the, it's not that it's just the wrong way to live, it's a less than best way to live. Notice Jesus gives them that way of escape unless they repent of their works. Again, what do we see here? We see the patience of God. And if you could sit down sometime, and this is not as hard as you think, but if you could sit down sometime and begin at Revelation chapter 1 and read straight through the book, you will see that repeatedly there are calls, the calls by God for people to repent. Even amidst all the things that are going on, there's this message, repent, repent, repent. And some of the things that the judgments that come upon the earth are designed to get people to repent. And that's what Jesus was giving them here. He's giving them a chance to repent. Now, verse 23 can be a little bit challenging for us. Why does Jesus say that he will strike her children dead? So, is this another group of people? I don't believe so. I believe children is a reference to her followers. So unless they repent, he's giving them the opportunity for them to repent. He's going to throw them into great tribulation unless they repent. And then he's, that's designed to get them to repent. But if they continue to resist and they won't repent, what's he going to do? He's going to take their lives. Why? Because they are a spot, a stain on the church. They're besmirching the bride of Christ. And he's not going to let that go on forever. And what will be the result of the Lord's actions? How will his judgment affect the churches? We'll look at the end of verse 23. All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and will give to each of you according to your works. In other words, Jesus says, this is what's going to be the ultimate result of my judgment Upon those in the church of Thyatira who won't repent, here's the ultimate result. They're going to know that I mean business. They're going to know that I take what happens in the life of my church seriously. They're going to know that what takes place in the lives of those who make up my church I take that seriously. They will know that I am completely aware of what's going on. You can run, but you can't hide. They will know that nothing can be hidden from the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. They will know that he demands his church, his followers, to live lives of purity, holiness, and fidelity to the gospel. They will know that he cares about what is being taught in the church and what the impact of that teaching is having on the lives of those who profess faith in Christ. Jesus cares about the quality and the character of the church. They will know that he will give to each church and each individual member of the church according to their deeds. And I believe this is in both a positive and a negative sense. For the false teacher Jezebel, this was 
a negative. He was going to give to her according to her sinful deeds, according to her sinful actions. He was going to judge her. But likewise, for those who don't participate in it, who remain pure, who, may, who, who remained above all of this, he's going to reward them as well. He knows their works. He takes notice of their works, and he will give them according to their works. Jesus knows your works, and he will reward you for your works. Fact. Certainty. Truth. And you may be thinking, well, I've hidden this from God for so long, I don't believe what you're saying. Well, okay. Are you willing to try the patience of God? Now, for those who come empty-handed to Christ and ask him to save them, he rewards them with forgiveness of sin and eternal life in heaven. But for those who reject the, the Lord's free offer of salvation, he will say to them, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. I leave you with this. You cannot escape the all-seeing eyes and the all-knowing mind of Christ, and he will reward you accordingly what will your reward be?